Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. Welcome back to Breaking Banks Asia. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and in episode 12, we are diving deep into the idea of fintechs becoming what they set out to disrupt banks. Fintechs buying banks was, quote unquote, the new trend in 2021, as fintechs around the world bought legacy and digital banks. But in the last two years, a lot has changed in the global economy. And some at the World Bank are even expecting a lost decade. Although I am old enough to remember similar things said in the aftermath of 2008. But in Asia, the drivers of growth are still the same. And many fintechs are still, despite those cash shortages, expanding into the realms of banking. Some to the point where they are still buying banks. So in this episode, we're asking the question, when does a fintech become a bank? And if they do become what they originally set out to disrupt, is this good or bad or something in between for competition? To kick off this conversation, we have Emmanuel Daniel. He is an author and the founder of the Asian Banker Financial Services News Outlet. Welcome to Breaking Banks, Emmanuel. It's great to have you on. Now, you have some strong views about fintechs becoming banks. Specifically, you did use the word trap. Can you walk us through why you believe fintechs are being entrapped and becoming the very thing they most want to disrupt? You know, uh, Rachel, uh, in my book, The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is here, I had already started tracking the UK tech players, uh, namely the peer-to-peer lenders, all of whom started making a beeline to try and apply for a banking license. And I had said at that point, that the reason the tech vendors were applying for a banking license was that they were sort of throwing in the towel because the so-called tech revolution didn't take place or didn't pan out the way it was supposed to. And if you take just the peer-to-peer players in the UK, they tried to get into the market uh, and match borrower and lender and call their product mortgage. And when they called their product mortgage, they walked right into all of the same compliance issues, liquidity issues, and even technological issues that the traditional banks faced. Despite the technology that they were proposing, platforms, uh, data of borrowers and lenders, you know, bringing them together uh, and so on, without the balance sheet, all of the technology that was uh, being proposed was trying to end up selling the same products that banks were selling. The regulators then step in and put a lot more restrictions on what uh, the technology players can do around this product called mortgage. The the technology players then decided that, you know what, we better get our banking license ourselves because the the issues that we we are facing, cost of funds, customer integrity, being able to hive off the assets and sell it to the capital markets and all that, uh, only banks can do. uh, And so we need to do the same thing. Uh, So they're walking right into the trap that regulators and the incumbent banking industry 
has set up for them. Now, technology is meant to reconfigure the product itself. Uh, that is that if you knew a little bit more about your customer who is borrowing for a mortgage, if you knew how long he needed the mortgage for, you, if you knew how a million customers like him tended to behave so that you could, uh, you could slice your assets into different types of asset portfolios, uh, different tenures and so on, you will start selling a different product altogether. Now, technology is making... What would that product be, in your opinion? It might be a lease of some kind. It might be a, a, a digital form of a timeshare. You know, it may be an asset where the, um, the borrower is able to slice up his loan, not into a, a chunk of a 30-year 30, 30 bond or a 30-year loan, but into, you know, something that he can pay off in two years, five years, eight years, 10 years, uh, and then the rest is a residual of 30 years. And they can also match uh, the, the lender because different lenders have different risk appetites. And, and so, you know, the, the loan will start looking very different and much more dynamic than it is now. Now, because it's still the early days of technology in the, on the platform space, um, we don't have enough data. We do not have enough profile of customers. Uh, we don't have uh, enough of the virtual reality type of an approach towards owning of properties, for example. That's an interesting one, Emmanuel, because we've all heard about the rush to grab a banking license in Asia and around the world so that fintechs can start looking like a bank, at least to regulators. I'm interested in this idea of fintechs actually buying banks in Asia, and this list isn't exhaustive. You've got examples like Gojek buying a stake in digital bank Jago in 2020, there's Singapore's C, it bought bank BKE in 2021. And in 2022, Finacell bought 75% of bank business international. And Grab, car marketplace Caro, and tech giant Bukalapak invested in digital bank Allo. Yeah, that, that's just Indonesia. There are, there are similar purchases in China uh, and in other countries in the region. And there are more than 200 banks uh, out there in Indonesia. So essentially what each of these players are looking for is a license. And what's common with all of these players is that they're all platforms. And it, it just reinforces what I've just told you, which is that these are platforms that want to be able to offer financial services, but because the kind of products that they are trying to issue are still traditional banking products, they need a banking license. And secondly, uh, they find out that their balance sheet, they can't compete with the traditional banks unless they have a balance sheet that enables them to secure deposits in order to be able to lend. Um, you know, and then there is also payments, which is really the underpinning of uh, all of these platforms. Uh, with payments, they reach out to customers. Uh, but then from there, the, the goal is uh, to build assets, both on the liabilities, which is deposits, uh, and on the loans. Yeah, get out of that middleman position. Why do you think some banks are buying legacy institutions, though? So, see deliberately bought into bank VK with the intention of turning it into a digital bank. And Business International was also a traditional bank. So why buy a legacy operation with all of those legacy issues that digital banking is supposed to solve rather than simply going directly for a digital bank as Gojek did with Jago? It's very simply because they're available, because it's there. 
uh, and because they're cheap and they're affordable to these players. Uh, and they're a cheaper way to get into the business without having to build a bank themselves. So the idea is to just get the license first. And it's only in Indonesia and 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 potentially in, in the Philippines where such licenses are easily available. The, the real challenge is that it's the BCAs and the Dunamons uh, and the large banks that still have market share uh, of deposits and of loans. Uh, and that's what needs to change if the competition in the Indonesian banking industry is to be upheavaled. What Grab and Gojek uh, are hoping to be able to do is that, you know, if you take either of them, right, Grab or Gojek, 140 million customers across 14 different countries, and they can connect all of them all at once immediately today. There is no bank in Southeast Asia that can do that at all. And yet, each of these platform players have to go market by market and acquire licenses market by market in order to create the linkages. So they are, they're creating the, in you can call it cross-border connectivity, but they find that what they have to do is to get a license in each market. Uh, and it so happens that Indonesia and the Philippines are the cheapest places to, buy, to actually buy a bank uh, in the marketplace. And if the market share is just moving around, what will it take to see real disruption? That's a very good question because, you know, in the U.S. alone, there are more than 20,000 banks, you know, if you take down the community level banks and so on. And in Europe, at the provincial level, uh, there are hundreds of banks in Germany and, and so on and in France. Because of technology, we should flip the question the other way around. Why can't everybody be a bank and provide the kind of a network effect uh, where they are dealing with everybody else? The answer today going forward is that uh, how do we network all of the different providers so that there's a maximum network effect where, you know, technically everyone, every individual is a bank and that any excess liquidity that I have, I put it into the network and it can be borrowed by anyone in the network. And there the risks and the uh, and the institutions will start looking very, very different. The institutions will not be holding assets. Uh, they'll be validating transactions instead, you know, things like that. So uh, it's a very good question because I, I think that that's the question that a lot of regulators and systemic risk people, you know, applying their mind into. But the way in which technology is taking us in, in, uh, in digital finance uh, and the network effect is that we need to start looking at uh, institutions very differently. Yeah, and that brings us into this open banking conversation as well, I guess, where some players have not been very willing to share data. Are you expecting a, a shift on that front? Remember when, when uh, open banking was first launched in the UK, the, the first year's prognosis was that customers went back to trusting their banks uh, instead of trusting any of the new payment providers uh, and new players that wanted to get into payments and so on. So I think that it's an evolution, which is that uh, at first, uh, the incumbent banking industry has an incredible trust. You know, I'll tell you this, that if you had an election in China today, uh, and it's a fully fair and free election, and you had 100 political parties in China today, Today, okay, the, the winner will still be the Communist Party of China, okay? Yes. Because people trust the, the party. People, the party has delivered. It has built infrastructure. It, it, it has kept the faith of the people, you know? So in the same way, if you open up all of banking to 100 different players in any country today, people still trust 
the traditional banks, because by and large, they have not lost the trust. They, they've, you know, they've done certain things that are, uh, are not right, but, but o- overall, uh, the banking industry still has a trust. Now, the question is, how will that journey evolve? Uh, as new players come into being, uh, they, they provide um, value that cannot be ignored, and then they build a certain critical mass in their business, uh, then that start that trust starts to erode. So that that journey is easily uh, you know a 10, 20 year uh, process uh, before which um, you know people start to trust non banks with their data. Now things are happening on the data front too, which is that data is being encrypted, uh, being provided individual identity and so on. And as as some of the you know early explorers in technology start experimenting and then find that. Um, you know, their data has not been corrupted. It will trust more. Um, you know, a lot has happened in the DeFi space, which actually validates uh, that technology is um, is holding up quite well. You know, everything that's happened in the US with uh, FTX and all the tokens and, and even uh, Bitcoin, you find that um, none of these technologies have lost uh, the integrity of the transaction itself. In fact, it's precisely because of the integrity of the transaction uh, that that it was possible for regulators and anyone uh, to follow those transactions. Uh, and you want to see that level of integrity in banking as well. That when a bank loses money, that is, you know, you don't have to go out and gather data and put it up on a balance sheet and then say, oh, you know, you've got a $60 billion hole here. Uh, but that you can create a $60 billion hole just by tracing the transaction in, in open source. Um, you know, so, so I think that open banking is still work in progress. And uh, everyone who's building uh, specific utilities around open banking, some of them are payments, but some of them are simply identity, um, you know, and, and some of them are relationships and so on. So, so each of these are chipping away at the incumbents right now. What would make a large fintech outperform, especially if it seems like just another bank? Isn't this market still likely to be taken by other players like retailers or other kinds of consumer brands? My advice to any uh, fintech player who's thinking about applying for a banking license is to start imagining a different banking product. Start imagining banking products in a totally different way. Go a little bit further. If you are going to be an efficient deposit player, I can see a world where every bank will compete with each other to issue its own stable coin uh, or stable coin equivalent because with a stable coin, it's the ultimate form of a digital currency, an ultimate form of a digital digitization of money that is very is usable in, in, in the digital space. And, and all of the elements of interoperability and so on have already been created and exist right now. You know? uh, and when you see how stable coins are evolving, Today, the only part of it which is uh, unstructured or hasn't been structured well is the governance structure, which is that when you issue a stable coin, uh, what guarantee is there that that the assets that you have backing the stable coin is sufficient? Uh, and, And when you think about it, it's banks that are able to answer that question the best of all because they're regulated, because they, they are transparent in the balance sheet and all that, right? And, and they have a governance structure in place. So, um, Hence why the tech companies want to buy them, I suppose. Yeah, uh, and take, take them there. Buy them and take them there, step by step. 
you know. So, so what I'm saying to fintech players is: imagine a world where deposits have been uh, the deposit business has been taken over by the stablecoin business. Um, it is possible to, for that to happen. In the same way, uh, imagine a world where mortgage is redefined as something else. And and for the answers that we don't have right now. Uh, it's coming on stream as, as the processing speed of data increases over time. Uh, and that's, I think, the challenge that, uh, that the fintech players have. And that's what I will use as an argument against any fintech thinking that the only solution is to become a bank. I'm going to bring you back to 2023. What are you expecting this year in the wake of that capital crunch for fintechs? Because... Tighter markets sometimes for real innovation, but it's pretty clear most banks are just going to be sitting tight and staying the course this year. So what do you expect? What are you hopeful for in 2023? What's going to be happening in banking is quite clear. Uh, Banking is walking right into a credit crisis, partly because banks will be reticent to you know to to grow their loan book uh, and because they're reticent to grow their loan book uh, gr- economic growth in general slows down small businesses become hard pressed for cash um, you know and that creates uh, economic crisis of its own then the question is where is the liquidity going to flow uh, and some of the answer for to that is what um, entire nation states are going to be doing, what the U.S. will do with the dollar and other forms of uh, currencies that are that are going to find their way with each other. In other words, countries uh, are being willing to trade with each other in alternative currencies. I think that all of this actually creates a universe, believe it or not, okay, uh, when you, if you, if you're a treasurer of a bank sitting in the treasury department and looking at your daily uh, cash flow situation and and your commitments that you have to make, you will be wishing that there is a process by which uh, you can design a protocol uh, by which to keep the the bank afloat and on an even keel. And that kind of a protocol already exists in uh, decentralized finance. It's working. So so what every treasurer needs today uh, is a realization that uh, there are now technologies to help him hold the whole institution together. Uh, And I think that if, if this year there is a banker somewhere, a treasurer somewhere, who says that we need to embrace decentralized finance in the way we manage treasury, that to me will be an incredible breakthrough. I'll be looking forward to that sentence coming out of someone, you know, someone significant in the marketplace. Um, and when it does, uh, it might be delayed by a few months, maybe not this year, maybe in the first half of next year, but it's a, it's a recognition that is coming uh, and it's coming very soon. Thank you for joining us, Emmanuel. This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Rachel. You've been listening to the Asian banker founder, Emmanuel Daniel. Coming up, we have Surendra Chaplot from Wise joining us after this short break. Do you want to be part of Breaking Banks Asia? Reach out to learn more about the opportunity to be featured in one of our shows. With an audience across Asia of CEOs, CTOs, founders and opinion leaders, Breaking Banks Asia is where the forward-thinking conversations are happening about the Asian fintech and banking scene. Reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Breaking Banks Asia or go to www.provoke.com.
www.sbs.com.au.fm. Welcome back to episode 12 of Breaking Banks Asia. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and I'd like to welcome Sarenja Chaplot, the Global Head of Product for Wise Account and Wise Business, who's based in Singapore. He started his career as a producer of Bollywood feature films, and he's also been a founder and led product teams in India, Indonesia, and Singapore. It's great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rachel. It's great to be here. I've heard a lot about this podcast. Amazing. That's always lovely to hear. We've been talking about the ways in which fintechs become banks or bank-like, and then how their original innovative natures seem to disappear. Wise has fashioned a successful global business, but now you're venturing into bank territory with several new products. So how does a company like yours stay sharp and flexible when you reach that bank-like level? I think just because we've been, uh, you know, we've built this company in a sustainable, resilient manner, that's the only reason we've been able to drop our prices kind of consistently over the last 11 years. Because we, as we continue to scale, as more customers use wise it becomes cheaper for the next set of customers that join us right like you know five years ago if you'd seen wise it was a company that helped customers move money across many different currencies and countries today we help customers hold that money uh, with us in 50 plus currencies we allow customers to receive money uh, like a local with bank account numbers in 15 plus markets with other local payment methods as well we also allow customers we also give customers a way to spend that money like a local with a debit card like so anywhere you're going uh, whether it's online or offline, you can spend with the Wise debit card just as you would with a, with a local payment method. And then finally, very recently, we've also allowed uh, we've also started giving customers a way to hold that money in different types of assets, uh, be it a be it a index fund for stocks or what we call the interest product in a money market fund that gives you uh, you know some level of return back while keeping your money extremely safe. And so, how, by building a you know a diverse set of products all of them uh, fairly sustainable in themselves uh, has allowed us to like kind of see through all these different uh, phases that come and go in, in the market. And That idea that you have given your customers a way of holding their money in places that will actually give them a return, how are you able to do that without holding a banking license in each jurisdiction that you operate in? So I'd like to answer that question by first breaking down what is a banking license actually like so because the bank as a term is like a very uh, you know it covers many different things that a bank kind of ends up doing for you um, and typically it's in three big boxes so the first one is moving money from point a to point b then a bank does this uh, wise does this specifically across borders and we hold the necessary licenses that allow us to do this in different countries these licenses are of a different flavor but by and large, everywhere we operate, every place that we operate, we do get that license. The second thing that a bank does, which is hold your money, uh, we want to do that as well. And, and specifically for customers and businesses who want to hold their money in multiple different currencies at the same time. We're not building a domestic-only account. We're building an international account for them. And so different markets, again, have different regulations that allow us to do this. Like In, in most markets, it's called the e-money regulation. Uh, and we have that license wherever we hold customer deposits. In some markets, it's slightly different. Again, uh, in Australia, for example, it's a it's a it's almost a prudential license that we've had to get in order to hold money and then also get access to payment systems. And again, because it was necessary for us to do that, we ended up doing that there. And the third big big thing that a bank does, which is to lend your money and and then make money on it, which is the riskier part of this, you know, 
all of these three parts, this is the most risky when it comes to customer deposits. We have no intention of going in there. Uh, we don't lend customers money. We safeguard customers' money 100%. And hence, like we don't need to necessarily go for a, uh, go to, go to a full banking license. Now, very recently, we've started offering the assets product where you're holding uh, units in a money market fund or an or, or a index fund. And in that case as well, the money is always in your name uh, held with an institution like BlackRock, for instance. If in case anything was to happen to WISE, you will be in complete control of your money at all points in time. Like you will have complete access to that money at all points in time. You are just a facilitator to different banks, different money managers, that sort of thing. I won't simplify it as that. Like what we are again looking for is the safest way uh, that we can keep that money in so that customers have 100% access to that. Again, what we're trying to solve with all of these things is bring more transparency into all of these different banking services or so-called banking services that that a customer needs, right? Like obviously with the interest product, you can you know earn interest on, on the money that you're holding with us. With the stock product, that money is invested in an index fund. It goes up and down, but it, it's very transparent to you. And then also in places where Customers just hold cash deposits with us, and we make money on it. Uh, specifically in Europe, for example, since last year, late last year, when interest rates started growing, we as an institution were making money on the cash that customers were keeping with us, and we started paying that money back to customers. Again, in the spirit of the transparency that we've always been you know, championing for, like we want to be able to give this money back to customers because it's at the end of the day, it's returns generated because of your deposits and you should you should have complete transparency and, and you should get that back, right? Customers who like you, who like you enough to use your banking or pseudo-banking products, they'd be more likely to bank with you. So what, to what extent does that demand drive additional products that are more highly regulated? What extent does it drive Wise's move into a much more regulated area of each market that you're operating in? I think, again, we are driven by what the customers have asked us. Before we launched our assets product, the customers had been asking us that, hey, I want, I am keeping money with you. I need to be able to keep it in a safe enough manner. But at the same time, I would like it if you can generate some returns for me. And then I don't like the fact that banks take my money and I have no visibility over what is happening with my money. And we thought, that okay, that's a very important problem to solve for customers because it is their life savings that they're keeping with banks at times. And we figured out, okay, what's the regulatory framework that we need to be in so that it allows us to give this product to customers. And in different markets, again, we had to get additional licenses to to offer this product. Like, for example, we got a new license in in Europe uh, recently. We've had that license in the UK. We now have that license in Singapore. And we're now kind of trying to get that in different parts of the world as well. Because that allows us to solve a customer, which was a customer problem, which was very clear and and and, and big enough for us to care about. Uh, so again, we take we take this quite carefully and seriously. That if it's a big enough problem, we don't want to shy away from taking on the challenge because it comes with an additional burden. Like in, in Australia, again, it's a great example. Like we are, I think Australia is the only country where we are prudentially regulated. And but then what we saw a couple of years ago when we when we started that process was that this like this new license would allow us to have access to the payment system in Australia, which is very fundamentally critical. It allows us to connect directly to the NPP, uh, which makes it even cheaper and faster for customers to move money in and out of Australia. 
And I thought, we thought that, okay, we are here to build this company for a really long period of time. Like, like we're not here for just a few years, right? Which allows us to take these really big, uh, ambitious bets, even though it was an extremely expensive thing for us to, you know, go through this process of getting this license. It, you know, it, we think really long-term when it comes to things like this, that if it solves a fundamental customer problem, then we should be taking on uh, these big challenges. Yeah, solving fundamental customer problems seems to be a problem for many banks, doesn't it? Talking about your move into deposits and uh, money management, or asset management, you're sneaking into an area where traditional banks, they have owned this area. This is their area. Remittances, moving money around the world, have done it grudgingly and very expensively, but now you're starting to eat their lunch. So do you see banks catching up to you or looking at you now and going, we need to start acting on something that they're doing because they are coming for us? There's a very positive trend with a lot of banks in Asia. And specifically, I'll give you a few examples of banks in Indonesia, for example. So uh, we recently launched with uh, Bank Mandiri, which is one of the largest banks in Indonesia. And what they did is that they saw that their customers were frustrated and, and annoyed with expensive, slow uh, FX or, or foreign exchange or, or money movement from Indonesia to other parts of the world. And instead of deciding to you know, rebuild all of it themselves, um, they decided to partner with Wise Platform. Now, we've, we've invested the last um, you know, decade in building uh, you know this this cross border payment company and and, and cross border payment network and that which which powers all of this money movement. I think it took us less than six months for their customers to now go into the app of uh, of Mandiri, click a few buttons, and be able to send money anywhere in the world. And they they have access to the same uh, you know same level of speed, same level of price and convenience that all the wise customers have. In fact, it's a little bit easier for them because the funds are already there and they just have to move that click a few buttons and then funds would be moved uh, to other part of the world. And we have now a growing number of partners who are now using WISE to do this. Like we have Shinhan Bank in, in South Korea in this part of the world, a number of different partners. Uh, in, in Australia, we've got the, the Up Bank as well, which, which uses us. In Europe, we are, uh, obviously have a little bit better presence with Monzo in 26 and so on. What we have always been advocating for is that the, the lack of transparency in money movement around the world is just wrong, right? Like you cannot have banks hiding fees in the exchange rate and charging customers like 7 10%. And the customer's just not knowing. The customers think that, oh, I got a commission-free transfer. Like that just is wrong, right? And so if because of what we are doing and because of us becoming a bigger and bigger challenge in this world, if banks also start taking this seriously and saying that, okay, actually we should bring more transparency to what we do. I think that's great for everybody because it only brings better services to customers. And at the end of the day, then they will choose like which is the which is the brand or which is the company that they can trust a longer term. And and we feel again that we have done a good enough job and we continue to do a better you know better and better job at it that customers then can continue to trust us, you know, to do be transparent to them and to charge them the lowest fee possible and give them the best product possible. You said before that you have all the licenses that you need to operate in the countries that you're in. Would WISE acquire a bank in the region in order to facilitate whatever future products that it needs to do? Or is partnering, as you're doing now, the ideal way forward? 
I'll give you two stories here. One is, for example, when we operate, when we started our operations in Singapore, the license that that allowed us to do money movement had uh, a condition, which was that every customer has to be verified face to face, which means we had to open up an office, put a couple of people there, and everybody had to line up and be verified face to face. Obviously, that's that was never going to scale, but we still went ahead with it, and we did it for a specific purpose, which was that okay, can we get the regulators to see that, hey, actually, here's the data from Singapore. Here's the data from all the different countries that we are operating in. You know, what you're trying to prevent here is obviously fraudulent use. And the data seems to suggest that, you know, eKYC is also as good as face-to-face KYC. And it's not, or in fact, it's better in many ways because we're able to leverage on a lot of uh, pieces of technology there. And then we slowly worked with the regulator here in order for them to change the regulation. And in fact, we were the first ones to then re- rely on their digital EKYC system called SingPass here in Singapore and, and started offering it to our customers. So we try and do this where needed, which is how do we work with the regulator to get the right types of licenses and then also evolve those licenses and those, those pieces of regulation because it brings the right kind of benefit to the customer. And the second example I would give you again, and to repeat myself a little bit, which is Australia, because again, we saw that connecting directly to NPP was really important for our customers. And then the only way we could do that was by being prudentially regulated. So our, our goal is, again, we, we, don't, we don't necessarily have to be a bank or necessarily have to have a banking license to achieve our mission. What's important is that how do we keep offering these kinds of services to our customers in the most uh, in the best possible manner? Sometimes the answer would be to work with the regulators and evolve regulations. Sometimes the answer is going to be like, let's get a much more stringent license like in Australia. And, and we are fine in exploring all of those options whenever needed uh, in different markets. Lovely. Well, let's, let's switch gears a little bit to innovation itself. In Asia, where do you see the innovation happening? So ge- geographically, I think like almost all of South Asia and Southeast Asia, I mean, like India is a great example where you know they, they leaped forward to a QR-based payment system called UPI, and like now it's like connected the entire country into a very cashless kind of a uh, society, and that is going to happen in many countries around around this part of the world, and we are obviously very excited about that. Uh, you know, any kind of financial services for businesses is still fundamentally broken in this part of the world. If you're lucky enough to open a bank account, it takes weeks, uh, if not days. And and I think that's that's just not okay, right? Like, uh, advice, again, we're trying to change this and specifically uh, for smaller and or micro and smaller businesses because those are the ones that are really, really underserved. So I think there is a lot that can be done over here on just how easy it can be for a business to start, get started. And then how do you uh, how do you offer a product that can do enough on everything for a small and micro business? And what I mean by that is like how can you build a one account for these businesses so that they don't have to go to fifteen different places to do you know all of their small little tasks? And I'll give you some examples there. Like you know, a small business wants to manage all of their employees and kind of give them different kinds of permissions and have you know give them uh, a card to make expenses. They should not have to go to a separate company to do that. They need some level of uh, reconciliation and statements to, to to see what their clash was like. They should not need another company to do that. Like our aim there is that how do we make it super convenient and, in fact, like help save time for these small businesses because that's what they are most keen on saving because they just don't have the people and the resources to you know manage all of those things. We were chatting with someone 
recently who was saying that many of the financial apps must be made for fairly low-powered smartphones. How do you build an app with all of that functionality for a phone which is smart but basic? That's a very fascinating question. Like what we have tried to do, and uh, I, I get this question a lot on like, you know, how do you build a customer experience for different all of these different uh, regions that we operate in as well because the need is very different. Any kind of a financial institution, the user experience or the the app that you're using or the website or anything that you're using has to almost take a backseat, right? It should become as effortless as sending an email. And then the the app that you're using is very simple and, and, and easy to use rather than having far too many functionality. And that's what we try to achieve with, with our apps as well, that uh, customers, anytime that they're dealing with money, I think there's a lot of, obviously, uh, I won't say anxiety maybe, but like a lot of care that they would put into it. And what we're trying to solve here is that how do we give customers some level of confidence that your money is always safe one very easy way of doing this, which you found, is that if you just move the money fast enough, right? Like if you click a button and the money is on the other side already, it just removes that doubt and, and that worry completely, which just makes the job of the app so much simpler, right? Like customers would not be opening the app over and over again to see where their money is, right? So that's one way of solving this, that how do you build an effortless kind of a user experience which just takes a backseat? The second way that we're trying to do this is that by building our products on on web as well, like, you know, mobile web as well, right? Like, you know, making it accessible on the simplest of places or the simplest of devices. Like you can, you know, you can be on a mobile browser. And uh, we recently, you know, went through a rebrand, uh, which, which we launched about a month ago, and we changed a lot of our fonts as well, for example, to make them more accessible, like the colors as well, to make them more accessible. And all of that was done in an attempt to make, A, the website uh, very simple for the majority of our customers, and then B, because it's available on web and mobile web uh, in a simple enough manner, you know, people can be anywhere in this world and have access to uh, to what they need on their fingertips, right? Like they're not relying on what kind of a device that they're using. Surendra, great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.